Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. And this is one of these occasions when it really will be helpful to follow along in the text so you can see some of these um, important details. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that your word will run rapidly this evening without hindrance and be glorified for the sake of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Shortly after Thanksgiving, a family put up their Christmas tree, and their little boy was wondering how long until Christmas. And every day he would ask, Mom, how many more days until Christmas? The family wanted to help this little this little boy out, so they got a calendar out, and they circled December 25th, and they said, this is Christmas Day, and what we'll do is mark off with a big X every single day so that you can see how we're getting closer to Christmas. And mom said, when all the X's are marked off, then it's Christmas. Well, the next morning, the family woke up, and they Went to the calendar to mark off the next day. And all the X's were filled in until Christmas. (laughs) Thanks for helping us with that, Zach. No, I'm kidding. That that wasn't it. There is a great expectation as Christmas grows closer. And you especially see that with little kids. But all throughout the Old Testament, God's people longed for Christmas. And let me define Christmas very clearly. We're talking about the birth of the Deliverer, the one who would defeat the serpents. We're talking about the birth of the Lamb, who would take away the sin of God's people. 
We're talking about the birth of the child through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We're talking about the birth of the child who would become a king, ushering the kingdom and bringing peace to the world. In other words, we're talking about the birth of God's Son who would restore paradise. Now, the anticipation of this excitement begins right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. You can turn there if you like. We talked about this two weeks ago. God created the world. So it's all yours to enjoy. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in the midst of the garden. The serpent who was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field came and told the woman, you will not surely die. She flat out lied, deceived the woman. She saw that the tree was good for fruit. It was a delight to the eyes desirable for making one wise, and she ate of the fruits. And then she gave some to her husband who was standing there with him. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized that they were naked. They were filled with shame and guilt for what they had done. God confronted Adam, and then He confronted Eve, and then He confronted the serpent, and He cursed the serpent. And at the end of 3.15, the Lord said, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking about the offspring of the woman. There was coming a son who would come from the woman eventually, and he would bruise the head of the serpent. He would crush his head, bringing about his ultimate demise. Now, I mentioned that Martin Luther made the observation that God never told Satan who he would be. So every time a son was born, Satan would tremble, wondering, is this the one who's going to bring about my defeat? In the very next chapter, Adam and Eve give birth to Cain, their firstborn son. And I'm sure they were wondering, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that God promised would come from the woman and defeat the devil? Cain was not the Messiah. Cain turned out to be a monster. He turned out to be the first murderer. And they had to wait another generation at least wondering if the next son would be the deliverer. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. Some 2,000 years passed. And then we come to Genesis 12. And this is what we read in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So 2,000 years later, God's reminding His people, I haven't forgot about the promise, but now He expands the promise. Not only will a son come about who will destroy the devil, but a son is going to be born, and he's going to be born in the line of Abraham, and through him all the families of the earth will eventually be blessed. 
So you can see that the promise of the coming Christmas is just growing as God gives greater and greater insight as to what this son would do. And we come to Genesis 22. We looked at this passage Sunday if you were with us. Abraham was told in Genesis 12 that through his offspring all the nations would be blessed and he waited year after year after year. And finally, when he was a hundred years old and Sarah was ninety, they gave birth to the miracle child Isaac. And they said, finally, he's come. And then roughly twenty years later, God said, now I want you to take that son through whom all the promises will occur, the land to your people and the blessing to all the nations. And I want you to go up to Mount Moriah and I want you to kill him and offer him as a burnt offering. And we saw that Abraham rose early the next morning and he went in obedience to God and he was ready. He had the knife raised. He was ready to plunge it into his son because he had deducted in his mind, let's see, God's promise that through Isaac, I'm going to be great. I'm going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. The Messiah is going to come from him. My, inherit, my descendants are going to inherit the land, but God wants me to kill him. How can this be? And he deduced that it must be that God is going to raise him from the dead. And Hebrews 11 said that figuratively speaking, God did raise him from the dead. And we saw very specifically that that happened on the third day. And what's hinted at in Genesis 22 in this episode is the demise of the devil, blessings will, which will eventually extend to all the families of the earth. If you take Genesis 12 literally, and I do take it literally, and we saw that final atonement for our sins is going to take place by means of death and resurrection. And that death and resurrection is going to take place on Mount Moriah. Abraham prophesied. On Mount Moriah, God will provide the ultimate lamb for His people who will take away the sin of the world. So in that passage, in symbolic form, we saw death on a cross, resurrection on the third day, God Himself providing the Lamb, Lamb rising again, bringing life to the world. Now, did Abraham and Isaac understand all of these details? Um, I don't think they understood all of these details. However, However, if I can emphasize this, I do believe that they understood a lot more than we often give them credit for. They understood that God was working in their midst. God had made great promises and eventually they would come to fruition uh, through one of their descendants. Well, time went on and God provided more and more clues as to what the first Christmas would be like. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, Isaiah chapter 9 is one of those dark books. 
And in fact, our passage begins by describing the darkness. This is what we read in Isaiah 8.22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, one pastor made an observation that when you read through the Old Testament, um, you find that much of it takes place at night. There's a lot of judgments, a lot of mention of darkness. And it's interesting, when I read John 1 earlier, Jesus, when He comes into the world, He is the light shining into what? Shining into darkness. So the picture that the Bible paints of the world before Christ comes is a world of darkness, which represents judgment. It represents death. And then Christ comes as the light of the world who is going to give life to His people. So that theme of light coming into the world that we sing about in some of our carols, if you, if you pay attention, is one of the great themes of Jesus when He comes. He, of course, is the light of the world coming into darkness. Now, this is what I want you to see about Isaiah. It is a book of darkness because judgment has come upon God's people, but a light is coming. But let's begin with the darkness. Isaiah 9 For there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So here's the former time, and then we're going to go to the latter time. But what's the former time talking about? God brought contempt, and He brought it to a specific land. Zebulun and Naphtali. What does that refer to? That refers to King Tiglath-Pilser coming from Assyria, bringing judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is what 2 Kings 15.29 says. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilser, king of Assyria, came and captured, and then he describes these places, Ijon, Abel, Beth, Mahak, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazer, and then notice this, Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So in 722 B.C., the king of Assyria comes, captures the northern kingdom at this place, takes people captive, and he takes them back to the land of Assyria. That's the contempt right here that Isaiah is talking about. But right in the middle of verse 1, we have this great word. But. Another one of these great contrasts. But. In the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Okay, so this land that, this land that was held in contempt because it was judged by the king of Assyria in the latter time, God says another time is coming. 
when a light is going to dawn, and it's going to dawn right here. You watch Galilee. You watch the land of Zebulun. You watch the land of Naphtali. Keep your eye on that place because the light is going to dawn right there. Turn ahead, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. If you back up to chapter 3, right at the end we have the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit descends on Him like a dove, anointing Him for ministry. This is why He didn't begin His ministry until He was 30. He's anointed okay, by the Spirit. It didn't mean that He didn't have the Spirit, but He was anointed with power from on high so that He could do the ministry that God was calling Him to do. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And then right after that, Jesus begins His ministry in Matthew 4.12. Now, when He heard that John had been arrested, He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, a shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. So Isaiah says, this land was held in contempt because of the judgment God brought upon it. But a later time is coming when light is going to dawn. Here comes Jesus. Where does He begin His ministry? Right here in that land. He is the light shining in the darkness. Now, just one other detail. This, this is fascinating. It's interesting when you look at passages in the New Testament that are from the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes the writers are at liberty to change them a little bit. And here's one change that I noticed. In Isaiah 9... Verse 2 at the end has, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And then when you turn to Matthew, this is what it says, And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So what you need to see here is that darkness symbolizes death and light symbolizes light. So when Jesus is the light of the world, He's bringing life where there was death. So Israel is moving from contempt to glory, from darkness to light, from death to life, all because of the sure grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what His coming brings about. Isaiah 9.3 And then the prophet says, describing what's going to happen at that time, he says, You have multiplied the nation... And this is spiritual Israel. And I hope you know that we are all part of the new Israel through faith in Jesus Christ. All the promises in the Old Testament given to Abraham, David, and the other prophets are yes and amen in Christ. So if we have faith in Christ, they all apply to us and we are a part of that holy nation, that royal priesthood. And then how he describes multiplied nation. He says, you have increased its joy... And then he describes it this way, 
they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Now, if you're part of an agrarian culture, harvest is very important. Any of you have gardens? Yeah, a lot of you have gardens. Um, that's a hobby, right? Or is that your livelihood? If you say, I'm basing my life on this garden, okay? <laughs> Imagine you are basing your life on that garden. Um, that's how it is if you're part of an agrarian culture. It was very important for the harvest to come in. So when the harvest did come in, there was great rejoicing. And that's one of the reasons why the psalmist says in Psalm 4-7, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. He was thinking of a picture. How can I describe that the joy God has given me is greater than anything the world has to offer? And he says, I know, I'll compare it to the harvest when their grain and new wine abound at the end. And then just in case people could relate to that, he gives another simile here. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Kids know what the spoil is? This is when an army goes into another territory, maybe a nation, maybe a people, and they conquer the nation and they seize their gold, they seize their silver, they seize their clothing, they seize anything that's of value. That's called spoils. That's called plunder. And when that happens, there, there's this tremendous celebration. And Isaiah said, it's going to be that kind of joy. It's going to be like when a conquering arm, army goes in and they just collect all the plunder from the other, from the other nations. Now, how is this going to happen? How is this nation going to be multiplied? How are they going to have this great joy? Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is going to happen because God is going to defeat Israel's enemies. And He's going to do it like He did it in the day of Midian. Anybody remember Midian? One person. Okay, very good. <laughs> Back in Judges 7, God set aside a man by the name of Gideon. He had an army of 32,000 men. And God said, you have way too many people. If you go in with 32,000 men and you defeat the Midianites, you're going to think that you did it because of your great army. And I won't get any credit. We can't have that happen. Tell the people if they're afraid, they can go home. Midian says, hey, if you guys are afraid, the Lord said you can go home. 22,000 packed their bags and went home. Thank you. We're out of here. <laughs> 10,000 left. Gideon's a little nervous now. He says, okay. God said, you still have way too many people. 10,000 10, people. Too many. Go down to the water. Have the men drink. Okay, those that lap up the water like a dog. Uh, separate those who lap up the water with their hand. Okay, the ones that lapped up their water with the hand were 300. The Lord says to Gideon, that's your army. Those 300 men right there. Gideon said, if I can paraphrase in, in the Hebrew, are you sure? <laughs> uh, 300, it's really dwindling down now, Lord. And obviously he gets nervous and God gives them some, some reassurance, but God brings about a great deliverance. 
And Gideon knows full well that it was because of the Lord. That's the illustration here. God's going to increase the nation. The joy is going to be multiplied because the enemy is going to be defeated like in the day of Midian. And then in verse 5, he says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's going to be a great nation because the enemy is going to be defeated. All these weapons of warfare, just, just burn them. We don't need them anymore because of the peace that God is going to bring about. How is that going to happen? Now, this is what I want you to see. Notice this if you have your Bible. Okay? Verse 3, the nation's going to be multiplied. Joy increased. Verse 4, 4, I'm going to defeat the enemy. 4, Weapons of war are going to be destroyed. Verse 6. Four. Okay, building up. How was all that going to happen? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And of course, the to us is God's people. And God is saying in this great passage that the light's going to shine, the nation's going to be multiplied, the joy is just going to be like a joy you've never experienced before. Your enemies are going to be defeated. You're going to experience peace. And it's all going to be because there's going to be the birth of a child. And a son will be given at the same time. Can, can you see why the Israelites would have been excited for Christmas? The, the birth of the child who would finally do everything that they've wanted God to do. Now, it's interesting. A child is born and a son is given. And we know that the child is born of Mary and the son is given of God the Father. And we could talk more about that, but we'll move on. And then Isaiah says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to reign. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This baby. <laughs> this, this baby is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Great question to ask a Jehovah's Witness. And I mean that. And I have asked them, who is this child? Look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah calls him Mighty God. And when I brought this up one time to a Jehovah's Witness, they said, but he's not all Mighty God. He's just Mighty God. And I said, but it also says that he's Everlasting Father or Eternal Father. Wait a second. This Son is eternal. You know what eternal means, right? Without beginning and without end. No beginning, no end. That, that only applies to God, does it not? So this child was born at a point in time and became man at a specific point in time, but he has always been God. It's just now that he is going to be fully God and fully man at the same time. That's why he's the child and the son at the same time. And then in verse 7, we have this great phrase of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, let me remind you that there is no gap 
between verse 6 and verse 7. And I mean that because some say that He was born and He came into the world. He died for our sins. He's our Savior. And when He comes again at His second coming, then He will rule and reign over the nations. But Jesus was born the King of the Jews. When the Magi came, they said, where is He who has been born what? King of the Jews. He was born a king. And then notice what the passage says. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From what time? Till the time that he is given as the son. From the time that he is born. From the time that he comes to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee and brings light into darkness. That's the time that's being talked about. The passage is very precise. Now, every once in a while, someone will say to me, it, it doesn't look like Jesus is reigning. It doesn't look like He's reigning. Look, look at what's going on in America. And I want to say, you, you need to look at all of history. And I'd love to ask this question. What percentage of the world was Christian um, by the end of the first century? 2% maybe. Move ahead 500 years, what percentage of the world was Christian? Then move ahead 1,500 years and then advance a little further than that after the time of the Reformation, which transport Germany and Europe and Scotland and spread to America and then Move forward another 500 years. Roughly one-third of the world claims allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, I know when people say that they have all kinds of different ideas as to what that means. But if you look at history, slowly but surely, there is an increase. That, that's undeniable. Don't just look at America. Worldwide, it's undeniable. And I remember when I, when I was talking to a student at seminary one time about, about how the kingdom grows, this student said, one of my professors said, there's no evidence in the Bible of this gradual growth of a kingdom. The, the, the idea is that Jesus is going to come at His second coming and He's going to establish the kingdom. It's going to be like an atomic bomb goes off and just the whole world is transforming. So there's no evidence for this gradual growth of the kingdom. I said, well, what about the parable of the mustard seed? kingdom of God is going to be like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all plants and then God plants it and, and it and it grows and it sprouts and, and over time it becomes the largest tree so that the birds of the air come and enjoy its branches and the beasts of the field come and enjoy its shade. And how about this passage right here? Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So, this is what I think we have to harmonize. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, I say it every week here, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Tell me. Go and make disciples. So Jesus has all authority. He has before He ascended into heaven. And with that authority, 
His government is increasing. In other words, we're seeing that rule and reign of Jesus Christ have an impact in our world. The mustard seed is growing. Uh, the yeast is being spread throughout the dough. That, that's having an effect. And, and I could give you other examples. But of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. That's why Jesus came. That's why He was born. And it's going to happen. I love this last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <laughs> In other words, God's going to see to it that this is done. He's going to see to it that the kingdom of His beloved Son grows and grows over time. So this is what the Israelites were looking forward to. The coming of this son, this child, um, who would rule on the throne of David. A while back, a Christmas card said this, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so He sent us a Savior. A Savior to save us from our sin, to save us from the devil, to save us from the curse, to save us from our enemies, so that He could bring us into His kingdom and we could experience His everlasting peace. He sent His Son to give us what we really need. A Savior. And that Savior is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Israel of old could only look ahead with increasing anticipation, wondering what this child would be like that was promised millennium after millennium. Father, 2,000 years later, we get to look back and see all the promises that were fulfilled in Christ. And we are the heirs to all those promises. And we see the full flower of Jesus because we live on this side of the cross. Father, thank You that we are a part of Your family. Thank You that we are a part of Your kingdom. Thank You that we get to be a part of the advancement of Your kingdom and that we can watch how it grows over time. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.